Our Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, and we are grateful that your revelation to humanity is one of mercy and love and grace, that you have extended your favor, not just to your people Israel, but to the nations, to Gentiles and Jews, all um, have available life in you through Christ. We give you thanks for that. Help us as we seek to understand Jesus' prayer here um, in John chapter 17, and we pray that your spirit would be at work in our midst this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, 300 years before uh, Jesus, the Greek mathematician Archimedes said this, and he said it, I'm sure, with a little hyperbole, but listen to what he says. Give me a point outside the world for a fulcrum, and I will move the world with a lever. Give, now, he's scientist, mathematician, give me a point outside the world for a fulcrum, and I will move the world with a lever. It's insightful, because if you want to move something, especially something that's large, it requires a point outside the thing like physical objects. If you want to lift a piano, you need a point, a pulley or a fulcrum to hoist the piano up. It has to be outside the piano to move the piano. And that doesn't just apply to physical objects. And that's what Archimedes is saying here. It doesn't just apply to physical objects. Even like institutional change requires a point outside of the institution to really spark change. Think about when when an institution changes, usually it's somebody from outside that brings the change, or at least an outsider within the organization that brings change. An example that I gave, that I've given before is uh, the example of Moneyball, the the Billy Bean story, who was the Oakland A's general manager, and he has, he's, he's on the outside, right? His salary limits are really stifling, so he's having to think creatively, he's having to think differently. And fast forward 20 years later, and Major League Baseball has been changed because of Billy Bean. A point outside sees things differently, is able to enact change within the organization. Now, here is the thing that we can all agree on. Change is needed. The world... The world needs to be changed. There's something, there's something wrong with the world. That's probably the most uncontroversial thing I've ever said from up here. There's something wrong with the world, and we all agree, we all agree with that. Now, the question is, what do we do? That's the real question. What do we do? If there's something wrong with the world, what are we to do? We're going to see that, that Archimedes' point holds up. His claim holds. And that is that we need a point outside the world in order to fix or to move the world in the direction that it needs to go. And we're going to see that this morning as we consider this passage of Scripture. Now, again, we're in John chapter 17. This, is, this whole chapter is Jesus' prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer that he's praying. And we, we were there last week. We've we got three Sundays that we're going to spend looking at this prayer. But he's praying this prayer on the eve of the most important day in the history of humanity. The fate of the universe depends on what Jesus is going to do in a matter of hours. His death, his work on the cross. And and, and what we're going to see in this prayer is that news of the rescue of God, his work on the cross, is going to be made known 
through his disciples. He's going to send them forth in this, in this prayer, pray for them as they go forth to, to, to declare the good news of God's salvation, that the world has been changed, and there's an opportunity to get on board with a new world order. That's what the disciples are going to share, and Jesus is going to pray for them. So we've got two points this morning. Mission, that's the first point. And then the second one is um, for what? For what? Mission for what? What's the mission for? So first we're going to look at mission, and then we're going to consider the, the point of the mission, the goal of the mission. For what? So first mission. Look at verse 18 there at the bottom. Jesus says, he prays to the Father, As you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent my disciples, them, into the world. God, throughout the scriptures, has a mission for the world. That's what he reveals, is this mission. And as the mission unfolds in the book of Genesis and Exodus, on through the, the revelation of God, on through the scriptures, as the mission unfolds, we see that the mission is to make the nations glad through the knowledge of God. That's the mission to make the whole world find joy through the knowledge of God. And what God is doing through these holy scriptures, through the children of Abraham, and on down through the the, the millennia, is he's making himself known to a particular people to give witness to him to the nations. And it's interesting that one of the things that always accompanies God sending forth people on mission for him, is his name, a declaration of his name. Think about Moses at the burning bush. Moses is, um, encounters God, and the people of, of, of Israel are, are enslaved. The Hebrews are enslaved. And Moses encounters God at the burning bush, and God gives him a charge. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Deliver my people from the hand of Egypt. And Moses says, well, who am I? Who are you? By what authority can I tell the Pharaoh, who's a divine being, it was believed, that's what the Egyptians believed, their kings were the God, they were gods. So by what authority are you God, this God here at the burning bush, telling me that I have authority over Pharaoh God to deliver the people? Remember what God says? And Moses is saying, who's, what's your name that I should let the people go? And God gives the name, I am that I am, which is a, an interesting way of saying, I am the creator and the sustainer of all the universe. Pharaoh owes his allegiance to me. It's, it's, it's the biggest authority. That's the authority by which Moses is going to the people of Egypt. And so he sends him forth on, on, on mission with the name of the Lord. And as we see, as the prophets unfold in Isaiah, for example, we see that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that God is God. And the mission of Israel, as we said, is to make God known to the nations. And that has been Jesus' mission as well. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent on a mission his son Jesus, that whoever believes in him might find abundant life, eternal life in Jesus. So Jesus, in other words, he's sent from the Father, from heaven. He comes from outside the world. He's... Jesus is a point outside the world, and he comes into the world to make God known. Look at verse 6 of the passage we have in your order of worship. I have manifested, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. 
I have made known your name. Jesus is not saying that I walked around with a sticker that said, hello, my name is God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when people see me, they are seeing the character of, they're seeing God. The works that I have done are the works, oh, the works of God. It's, it's the character that all of God's greatness and glory and grandeur, grandeur was somehow contained in the person of Jesus. Paul says it like this, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so through this prayer here that we're looking at in John chapter 17, we see that Jesus is now sending his disciples on a mission. Just as Jesus was sent, again, verse 18, as Jesus was sent into the world, he's sending his disciples into the world to extend the good news of Christ to the world. Now, last week we said that our purpose, humanity's purpose, is to know God, to know their creator. It's, 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 and it's the missionary, and the, and the missionary's purpose. So our purpose is to know God, and the missionary's purpose is to make God known. So we're making God known so that those in, in the world that don't know God might come to know God. And Christ is giving his, his disciples that missionary work. It's also our missionary work by extension. Now, Jesus is making, he's manifesting the name of the Father, verse 6, in a very localized area, right? Just a small region, miles. The disciples are going to extend the work of Christ and the good news of the gospel across the world. They're, they're going to go as far east as India. They're going to go as far west as, as Rome and, and, and maybe even Spain, as far west as Spain. They're going to go across the known world to declare the gospel of Christ, proclaiming the good news of God's saving action in the world through Christ. So, what will save the world? What will move the world? Christ, who comes from heaven, comes from a point outside of the world, he's going to save the world. Back to Archimedes' point, right? Give me a point outside the world and I'll move it. I'll change it with a lever. I'll change it. Christ is the, is the point. He's the point outside the world. Now, but who's to share this message to the world? It's the disciples who also are from outside the world. Now you think, well, wait a sec. I thought they're earthlings, right? Humans, the disciples. Not so fast. Look at what Jesus says, verse 14. The world has hated my disciples because they are not of the world. They're not... Christians are not of the world. We're a point outside of it. We've been born, yes, born of flesh and blood, but also born of the Spirit. That's what, Paul, that's what Jesus tells Nicodemus by night. Remember in John chapter 3 that you have to be born again, that you have to be born of the Spirit. And for those that have been born again by the Spirit of God, they are no longer of the world. The disciples themselves represent a point outside the world. We are a point outside the world. We're not of this world. We're, we're, we're outside, we're in it, but we're not of it. The world needs to be changed. In order to be changed, the world has to be something large. This, is, this has been my argument this morning. I hope you're tracking with me. If anything large needs to be moved or changed, it takes something outside of that thing to make it happen. The world is a very large place. It's really big. 
And in order for it to be changed, to be moved, it needs a point outside of it. And we see that Christ came down from heaven. And even the messengers, the disciples, are now, by virtue of the Spirit, renewal, are not of the world. But they're also Christ's disciples. We are outside of the world. But not just that. It keeps going. The work of Christ is out of this world. The actual work of Christ that's going to happen in a matter of hours is otherworldly. Look at verse 19, the last verse of the, of the passage here. For their sake, for my disciples' sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Jesus says that he is about to consecrate himself. And what does that mean? He is to set himself apart. And that's what he's going to do. How is he going to consecrate himself? He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be lifted up above the crowds. He's going to be set apart on a cross. He calls it, John calls it his exaltation. He's going to be lifted up. The Son of Man will be lifted up. This is the lifting on the cross. He's set apart from the crowds, hoisted above them. And his death, his work, is his consecration. And his consecration is our sanctification, our setting apart. Only because of his work and his consecration can we be sanctified. Can we be set apart and saved as God's people, as God's children? Only through his consecration can we be sanctified, verse 19. And so what I want you to see here is that the work of Christ on the cross, his consecration, is out of this world. C.S. Lewis says, you know, nobody makes this stuff up. Nobody makes this kind of stuff up. This is, this is unprecedented. A king whose exaltation is the shame of a cross? lifted up, but it is. And that's what John has been saying. It's, it's a power and it's a wisdom that is not of this world. It's the cross and it's out of the world. And it has to be out of this world because remember, remember Archimedes, we need a point outside the world in order to really move the world. You see, everything about the person of Christ about the work of Christ. It's foreign to the ways of the world. And only because of that can it change the world, move the world, improve the world. And not just that, but we ourselves, the disciples of Christ, Christ's children, his followers, who are extending the mission into the world, are not of the world either. We've been born of the Spirit. Listen to what Leslie Newbigin says. And he's, Leslie Newbigin's actually commenting on the Archimedes quote. Remember, a point, give me a point outside the world for a fulcrum, and I will move the world with a lever. Listen to what Leslie Newbigin says about that. If the church doesn't rest on a point outside the world, it has no leverage with the world. All its tugging and straining is but a minor disturbance within the life of the world. You see... You have, to be out, you have to be outside of it to get any leverage with the world, to really change the world. Islam, Buddhism, so-called um, sexual liberation, Sikhism, paganism, none of them have any power because all of them emerge from this world and are animated by the powers of this world, of this age. So they have no power to change. Now, so that's the mission. That's our mission in Christ. Now, the next question is, what, what's the, for what? 
What's the purpose of the mission? We kind of said it already. We we said that the missionary is making God known so that others might know God. And that's the purpose. And what happens when we know God? There is joy. So the purpose of the mission is to bring joy to the world. We just sang about it a few weeks ago. Joy to the world. That's what the purpose of Christianity is. Uh, I heard John Travolta, who is the actor, who is a um, Scientologist, an adherent of Scientology, and they, they, were, ask, they were asking him why he, was, um, why, he was, why he followed Scientology, and he said, because, because, it, because of joy, because it's really, it really centers on joy. And he said this, he said, name me another philosophy, Travolta said, another religion or technology that makes joy the main goal, that makes joy the operative principle. Now, Travolta's right. Joy is really important, and joy is something that often eludes us. He's wrong to say that Scientology is the only thing that centers on joy. Joy joy is at the center of Christianity. It's it's right there. Christianity considers joy a primary good, and Jesus prays it right here. Look at verse 13. I, now I am coming to you, Father, Jesus said, prays, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy. You see that? My joy fulfilled in themselves. And we, we developed this point last week that joy, that for all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been relating to one another in pure bliss and delight and pleasure. Joy has been the, the reigning, the governor of that relationship. Joy and delight. And what Jesus is praying here is that we, the followers of Jesus, might have the joy that the Father and the Son have enjoyed from all eternity. He wants to fold us in to the triune, infinite joy and pleasure of God. That's what Jesus is praying for right there in verse 13. Now, again, we we developed this point last week, but we're going to kind of review some of that ground that we covered last week. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You make known to me, God, the path of life, and in your presence, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, that at the right hand of God, that knowing God is the, is the sweet spot for pleasure. Knowing God at, his, at the Father's right hand. That's what Psalm 16 is saying right here. Now, that's difficult for us to believe um, for a variety of reasons. I mean, one, one thing I think of is like the, the, the media, the, the portrayal of Christianity is usually a little less than favorable that we see. Um, not the most attractive place when we kind of consume the media around us about what, what the church is, and maybe even our own experience of church has been kind of dull. But the promise here, what Jesus is saying, and what the psalmist says, is that at the right hand of the Father are pleasures evermore. And it makes sense. It makes sense. The claim holds. Remember last week? Remember the treasure trail? Imagine that you're walking through, like hiking through the woods, and it's a trail, and you see some precious metals, like little gold nuggets on the ground, and you see maybe some silver, and you see some jewels and rubies, and you see like, there's just a trail of them, and you pick up about four of these things, 
and you start like obsessing over them. You call them your precious and you're caressing them and you're, you're just fixated on four little jewels. But you don't ever think to follow the trail to the source. To the extent that we stop short of God to find pleasure, we're like the person on the trail that picks up a few gold rubies. Because here's the thing. The world has plenty of pleasures and plenty of delights, plenty of things for us to fixate on. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's building things. Maybe it's um, family. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's sexual satisfaction. Maybe it's kind of constructing our own sense of ourselves. Whatever it is, there are all these treasures, we might say, that we seek without going to the source of those things, the creator who made them in the first place. And that's the Bible's logic. All the joys that we see in creation, to the extent that we stop there, we're stopping short. We're just picking up a few things and not going to the source of those things. God. And look, look at this. It's important that we find our joy in God. Because we're not going to get it from the world. Look at what he he says in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The joy that that the disciples will experience from the Father, Christ's joy, Infinite joy is to sustain the disciples through the pain and suffering of the world and the persecution that they will experience in a matter of decades. All of them, to our knowledge, dying um, for their proclamation of the gospel. That is to sustain them. And Christ is praying. He's praying specifically for the apostles, for, for the apostles as they go on their mission. who are going to go, like we said, across the world to extend the gospel of Jesus. But the prayer applies to us as well, who are also sent to the world to share the good news of the gospel, God's rescue plan for the world. And and Christ, the the answer that Christ gives to the world, remember what we need, something's wrong, what needs to be changed? The answer that Christ provides is, yes, salvation but real, eternal joy, what Jesus describes as abundant life in him. That's his promise. Now, I want to conclude by providing just a few, four, four encouragements as we seek to proclaim the good news of Christ to the world. Maybe we go across overseas Maybe we stay here. Maybe it's our neighborhoods. Maybe it's our workplaces. Maybe it's where we recreate. I, you know, all around us are people that don't know this news. And so what, how, how do we go out? I want to give just four encouragements to you about that as we consider mission. Now, the first thing to say is that mission, mission is not unique to Christianity. It's really easy for us to think, oh, okay, like we're the weird ones out there having to tell people about Jesus. That feels kind of, kind of awkward, kind of weird, as though we're the only ones on mission. But that's not the case. We're all on mission. Every human is on a mission. We've, it's just in us. There's a great Tim Keller sermon on this very passage here that we're looking at. Um, it, if you want a, a really good sermon on this passage, go, go to that one. Um, but, but one of the points he makes there 
is that when, when, you, when, when we're children and we start thinking about work, nobody ever says, when I grow up, I want to push paper at a highly bureaucratic institution. Or when I grow up, I want to just peck on a keypad of a computer and just do that. No, that's, that's not what we want to do. We want to, we want to do things for the world. When we're little, we want to be firemen, or we want to be in the army, or we want to be policemen, or we want to be nurses, or teachers, or doctors. We want, to, we want a mission to help people. It's in us. And, and here's the thing. So we're all on mission, and you better believe there, is, there are missionary efforts going on all around you. Um, the, the, the secular age that we find ourselves is constantly trying to inculcate its understanding of the world into our minds and hearts and children and all of that. There's aggressive, and actually those attempts are getting even more aggressive. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty powerful missionary endeavors um, that are going on around us. So here's the point. Mission is universal. Everyone's on some kind of mission. The question is not whether you're on a mission, but which mission are you on? Are you trying to change the world from within the world? That's the secular mission, that all of us within us have the resources we need to find life and make the world right and all of those things. Or are you on a mission uh, with a leverage point from outside the world so you can really change it? And that's what Christianity is. So the second thing, the second, so that's the first. Mission is not unique to Christianity. There's nothing strange about us proclaiming the gospel because everybody's trying to proclaim something to us in the, in the world. Second thing, mission is not, we don't do mission for the love of God, but out of the love of God. Look at verse 6 again. Jesus says, I have manifested, well, let me say that again, actually. We, we don't do mission for the love of God. We do it out of the love of God. Now, verse 6 says, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Now, Jesus says something very similar in uh, John chapter 10, the the Good Shepherd um, chapter. And he says this, and I like the way he says kind of the same thing here. He says, I give them eternal life. I give my disciples abundant life, full life, joyous life, and they will never perish. And no, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, listen to this, and is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Now, the way Frederick Bruner paraphrases that, I think, is, is great. And this is what he says. My Father has given my disciples to me. They are my most prized possession. And because they are my most prized possession, no one can get them out of my hand. Think about it. What do you do with your most prized possession? You take care of it. You use your power, your might, your resources to hold on to it, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. My people, my church is my most prized possession. And because of that, all of my power, all of my wisdom, Everything is being exerted to protecting, to holding on to my most prized possession. And so that comes by way of grace, the security that we have in Christ. It comes by way of grace. Now, 
in, in kind of our evangelical world, it's very easy for us to get the impression that the way to really get God's love is through global missions or local missions and evangelism. That if I really get out there and get after it, then I can be kind of a super Christian and really get God's love. And that's not it. Evangelism flows from the security that we already, from God's love. It's not something we do to get God's love. It flows out of God's love. It's not for his love. And that's the second point. The third encouragement is that mission is the outflow of joy. Mission is just an outflow of joy. Imagine that you have a complicated and rare form of cancer, and there is this cutting-edge treatment for that cancer, and you receive it, and it actually works, and you're healed of cancer. Don't you think that when you're in conversation with other cancer patients, especially those who have similar cancer, that you're going to say, this doctor... They've they've had the treatment that worked. It's rare, but you can find it if you go to this hospital and get in touch with this person. You're going to share that. And what if you didn't share that to the person you're talking to that has cancer? I mean, that would be offensive, wouldn't it? And what the claim is, is that we're all, like, we have this cancer. It's sin, and it's killing us. And there's an answer for it, is the claim. that comes from outside this world. You can't find it here. Except by way of the Spirit. And we have the answer and we proclaim, we proclaim it. So um, we don't do missions. Or I'm sorry, missions is an outflow of joy that we have received in finding Christ. Now, the, the fourth thing I want to say is that the message, the gospel message is dynamite. Um, it's dynamite. It's very tempting for us to think, but what if I don't know what to say, or I kind of fumble my way, I'm not good with words, or I have difficulty speaking. That's okay, and it's not bad to want to improve that, but don't feel that pressure because the message itself is dynamite. Paul says, I came in weakness. I didn't come in power in great speech. There were people that came with great speech and charismatic and all of that and winsome and slick and savvy with their words. Paul says, I didn't have that. But I I came in weakness so that the power of God might be demonstrated through the message itself. Because he says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And the Greek word is dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from. Which is why the message, which is why I said the message is dynamite. It's dynamite. The power is not in the telling, it's in the tale that's told, the story, the gospel message. And what is that message? The best summary of the gospel is 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's verse 3, where Paul says, I gave to you what is of first importance, that Christ died for your sins, and then he was raised again on the third day. That's it. That's the gospel. So, you take a figure, you take a person, Jesus, from out of this world, from heaven. He performs a work on the cross that's out of this world, right? Right? The cross, and he sends out his ambassadors, his missionaries, who are from out of this world because they've been born of the Spirit. They're no longer of this world. And you have the recipe to move the world. You have the recipe to transform the world. In fact, not only to move the world, you have the recipe for a a new world to break into the old. And that's the promise of Christianity, that Christ's kingdom is actually here very hard to see. In fact, apart from the Spirit revealing, you can't see it. But it's breaking in, it's infiltrating, 
and it's spreading through the work of his missionaries. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for the good news that we have in Christ. We pray that you would help us to taste and drink of that as we come to this table. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.